Amen. I'm so glad to be back tonight. Have had a great day so far. We um, in a beautiful place with a beautiful view. I think we talked about that, and, and um, got some extra rest this morning, which um, honestly needed it and was a help. And then I had as good a lunch as I've had in a long time. So that was a that was a blessing. I don't know the name of the place we went to, but my goodness, it was great. And uh, you know how you have in your mind just the way something's supposed to taste. It doesn't mean you can't eat it different ways. It's just in your head, you're, you're saying this should taste like this. Everything tasted that way. So <laughs> gravy and mashed potatoes and big old hamburger steak and some fried squash. And yeah, that was a blessing. I don't even know, what, what are we doing here? Is that place open now? Let's get, anyway. Anyway, that, that was a blessing. Praise the Lord. I'm so glad that um, I get to be here with Brother Nate and with Miss Beth, and it's great and uh, thrilling to me. So, uh, But I know that I've got a lot of people sitting here that came out on a Tuesday night, and and uh, so I don't take that for granted. I want us to get something out of the Scripture that would help us Amen. and uh, be a blessing to us. Is it 718 or so? Is that what I'm looking at? All right. Get, re- get myself ready here. And... Uh, so I'll know when to quit. You've heard people say uh, the preacher preached over. You ever heard that? No, I'm never sure what that means. Who said there was something that was over? I, was there, did, somebody, did somebody get together somewhere and decide where that line was at? Amen. All right. Okay. Genesis chapter 12 is where we're going to go. Last night we talked about the idea that Jesus really is the answer. We really can have victory in the Lord Jesus Christ. And and in all honesty, last night's sermon was little more than an exhortation to work on the attitude, right? Just You just have to decide that you're going to get back in the fight sometimes. And that if you're going to go down, you're going to go down swinging, right? You had to take a few shots on the way down. And um, a lot of times the fight gets a lot easier if you put a little fight into it, you know, and that's the way it goes. And life will sometimes, uh, it's not going to lay down for you, but it'll get a lot better if you work at it, if you have a plan, if you have a goal, if you have a dream, and, and you plan for that to make that dream come a reality. And then you start working that plan every day and, you don't allow this discouragement to sidetrack you. If you fail, you get back up and you start again. You reanalyze your plan. You keep it in front of you and you go at it every day. And you keep doing that because you know that Jesus, he is the victory ultimately. Amen. And so if we have the victory ultimately, why would we want to be a failure from on a daily basis, right? right. And, and sometimes life is simpler than we make it. And so that's kind of what we were trying to accomplish last night. And last night, if we recognize the fact that Jesus really is the victory, he really is the answer, and tonight I want us to kind of make this observation, that uh, there really is greatness in a life of faith, okay? We live in a world and a culture that celebrates appearance and performance, okay? And uh, if you can't... um, you know, look like George Clooney and play golf like Tiger Woods, then you're kind of a loser. And honestly, 
uh, everybody's not going to be a Tiger Woods. Everybody can't be Larry Bird. My dad used to tell me when I was a kid, son, if you believe in yourself, you can do anything you want to do. I, I believe you can do it. And I appreciate what he was trying to tell me. He was trying to encourage me and, 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 and motivate me, and he, he was somewhat right. But let's face it, there's some things I don't have the tools to pull off, okay? I, I, everybody can't play the piano. Everybody doesn't have a musical ear. They could take lessons to the rapture and never play anything you'd want to hear because they can't hear it. You follow what I'm saying? So that kid needs to find something else to do. Everybody's not going to be a bookworm. I mean, everybody needs to learn to read, but everybody's not going to be a bookworm. Everybody's not going to be an athlete. But everybody can live a life of faith. Everybody can follow God, believe God, trust Him, and walk in obedience and experience the blessings that come from that. And that, my friend, will lead you to greatness. And you'll begin to see some things in a life like that. You'll begin to see what's really important, what's really valuable. And you'll find out why the people behind the, in, in the gated communities are committing suicide just like the people in the trailer parks. Because sure. happiness really doesn't always grow inside a large bank account. Amen. Are y'all with me tonight? Y'all? Okay. All right. You don't have to say a lot of amens. I mean, I'm nobody special. Helps my self-image a little bit. Makes the sermon go better. You're not obligated to say amen at all. But I just want to check. Let me know if you're happy right now. Raise your hand. I'm glad to be here. That's good enough. All right. Okay. I'll make, make sure if I, uh, what I'm dealing with tonight. Okay. All joking aside, Genesis chapter 12, enough of that nonsense. But we're going to talk about a life of faith tonight, and hopefully, it, I guarantee it relates to everybody in here, okay? Because we walk by faith, not by sight. And uh, without faith, it is impossible to please God. There is nothing more basic and central and necessary to the Christian life than faith, okay? We don't have that. We don't have anything at all. So that's what we're going to talk about. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord had said unto Abram... Now, Abram's name is going to be changed to Abraham. Some say Abram. I, I think it's Abram. I'm going to go with Abram, all right? Now, over in Acts 7, Stephen is preaching, and he's telling the story of Israel, and he refers to Abram, in other words, before the name change, and he calls him Abraham. You follow me? <laughs> all right. So even though our story tonight deals with Abram before his name is changed, I'm going to call him Abraham because it's easier, all right? And we'll, we'll all know just what we're talking about, all right? All right. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee... a now, notice he didn't say, so Abraham, let me send you on a little survey trip so you can decide if you want to go where I want to lead you. Sure. <laughs> he didn't do that, okay? And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. 
So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was seventy and five years old when he departed out of Haran. Get that. Seventy-five years old, and he's setting out to follow the Lord. And Abram took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their substance that they had gathered and the souls that they had gotten in Haran, and they went forth to go into the land of Canaan, and into the land of Canaan they came. And Abram passed through the land unto the place of Sichem, unto the plain of Morah, and the Canaanite was then in the land. You know, that, that statement means something, you know. It's not just there. It means that something about the presence of the Canaanite was going to affect Abraham and his descendants. They're going to have to deal with that, see. Canaanites in the land. Verse 7, And the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there builded he an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. We're going to talk about uh, the life of faith tonight, and I've titled this sermon in the past, Going Where God Leads. I've entitled it, The Baby Steps of Faith. I've talked, entitled it, Staying on Track. And tonight we're going to talk about how the life of faith leads to greatness. All the same thing, all right? Let's pray. Lord, we pray for your help in this hour. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Now, I contend that there's no greater book in all of the world's literature than the book of Genesis. Here in this one book, 50 chapters, we encounter science, theology, sociology, drama, romance, prophecy, history. There's so many things there. And not only that, there's so many firsts. When you study the scripture, a first mention is almost always significant. And so the list of first mentions in the book of Genesis is quite long. Much to learn there, both in a deep theological sense, in a historical sense, and in a practical sense, right here in the book of Genesis. Genesis is called the book of beginnings. That's what it is. There are three significant beginnings, three colossal beginnings in the book of Genesis. First of all, we have the beginning of creation and humanity. That's a pretty big one, all right? This book tells us how it all started without any prevarication. In the beginning, God, amen? All right? I believe it was... was, um, Oliver B. Green, who wrote the margin of his Bible right there, and I believe all the rest. Amen. Amen. So creation and humanity. Number two, there's the beginning of post-Diluvian life. That's a fancy way of saying life after the flood. So we've got the new beginning of creation and life and humanity. We've got the new beginning after the flood. And then we have a third beginning. Watch this. The third beginning is the beginning of the nation of Israel. You know, he says here in chapter 12, we read it, verse 2, and I will make of thee a great nation. Okay? 
Now, what is most important in the book of Genesis, what is the weightiest material for us to consider is easily seen, I think. The first two beginnings, the beginning of creation and humanity and the beginning of life after the flood, and by the way, very interesting stuff in those few chapters. But it only takes up 11 chapters. 11 chapters covers those first two colossal beginnings. But then we have the third beginning, which is the beginning of the nation of Israel. It takes up 39 chapters and covers approximately 400 years. Y'all watch this. The first 11 chapters covers 2,000 years. That's broad strokes. The third beginning covers, what do we say, 400 years, 39 chapters. In other words, in that third section, the history of the nation of Israel, God begins to tighten the focus and to slow the narrative down and to look at more details, if you will. It has been said that Genesis 1 through 11 is the preface to the book of Genesis that the book and the story of stories kind of kicks in in chapter 12 as the root is to the trunk. So are chapters 1 through 11. And and as the trunk is to the rest of the tree, so is Genesis to the rest of the Bible. Y'all see that? So the Bible grows out of the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings, which is rooted in the first 11 chapters. Now, I'll give you all that information not just to say things, not just to have an introduction, pretend like I know something. This is stuff that anybody can find. You don't have to be smart to know that or to say that. But what's noteworthy is the shift that takes place in the Scripture in chapter 12. Up to chapter 12, God's focus has been upon all of humanity. All of mankind is in view. You know, for instance, you find a little statement over in chapter 3 where it says, Then began men to call upon the Lord. Right? You've got all of the world that's, that's told to, to go and to replenish the earth, and you have Nimrod gathering this great number of people there at Babel. And so there's all of mankind in view. Cain being the first man to establish a city. It's interesting, the first man to build a city is a murderer. That's an interesting observation, I think. So now watch this. We go from focusing on all of mankind, and in chapter 12, we draw our focus down to one man, Abraham. And we begin to talk about one man, Abraham, and his family and his descendants. We begin to focus upon Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The patriarchs, we call them. These family heads, these leaders who God used to govern by paternal right in the scripture and to establish some order and to begin this great story of redemption. The great center section of the book of Genesis has to do with Abraham alone. Chapter 12 through chapter 36, it's all about Abraham. Abraham is arguably 
after Christ, the most important figure in the Scripture. There is a huge portion of Scripture, or a huge portion of the New Testament dedicated to Abraham. Romans, for instance, has uh, an entire chapter that deals with Abraham. Galatians, two chapters. Hebrews has a large section in Hebrews chapter 11, and it all deals with Abraham. The three major religions of the world recognize Abraham. That would be Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Which tells me something, that if you're wrong about Abraham, you're going to be really, really wrong. Y'all with me on that, see? So Abraham is a big deal. Abraham is, his story is fraught with truth that we need, with basic principles and life lessons that go with them that are important for the Christian to get. I'll tell you something fantastic that it says about Abraham three times in the Bible. Three times in the Bible it says that Abraham is a friend of God. Man, that's a blessing to me because when I read about Moses, this great leader and lawgiver, I see very little that I can relate to. When I see David, the sweet singer of Israel, both the psalmist and the man that killed a lion and a bear with his own hands and became the darling king of the greatest nation in the world, I see very little there to relate to. But when I see someone about whom it is said three times, he's God's friend, I know I can be a friend to God. That I can do. And so can you. And your whole life would be different if you decide I want to be God's friend. I'm going to stop questioning all of my circumstances. I'm going to try to learn some meekness and learn to be at home where God puts me, and I'm just going to be God's friend. That, my friends, would change your life. We could stop right now and pray and go home, and if everybody said I'm going to be God's friend, it would be worth everything we've done and could do. But I want to preach the rest of my sermon. So, Now, let's make some observations, okay? As we consider this great story where Abraham is called out of the land of his kindred and he's led to a place to where he's going to be great and his name's going to be great and he's going to, a nation is going to flow from him. All the nations of the world are going to be blessed because of Abraham. Let's make some observations, all right? Look at verse 1. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Abram, I want to make this observation, number one. There is no greater day in a person's life than when God first speaks to him. Let me think about that. Aren't you glad that God has spoken to your heart? Aren't you glad that God has been drawing you to himself? I believe the Bible, you know, tells us that if Christ be lifted up, he said, I will draw all men unto myself. And I believe that he is that light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. And Titus says that the grace of God which bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men. And I do believe that this God of love is drawing men to himself. And Abram, Abraham is a wonderful example. You know this? that Abraham had no measure of faith, no element of good on his own. God didn't look down and say, boy, there's a really sharp guy. I like that guy. He's got his stuff together. I think I'll go down there and use him. That's not the way it worked. 
The Bible tells us in Joshua 24, 2, And Joshua said unto all the people, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood in old time, even Terah, Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nacor, and they served other gods. Abraham was an idolater when God called him out. Abraham brought no good to the table. Neither could you, neither could I. The Bible, listen, all men are dust. All men are like sheep and have gone astray. There's no good in man, no man, not any man, anywhere. All our righteousness is, are as filthy rags. So if you're thinking, I don't think I'm all that great and I don't think God's all that impressed with me, you're not and he isn't. But he loves you. And he can take you just like you are and do wonderful, great things with you. And the life of faith can be one blessing, one victory after another. John Phillips, commentator, said the story of Abram's believing begins, of course, with God. Unregenerate man is so wedded to his idols that the initiative must begin with God. Aren't you glad for the day God spoke to you? You remember where that was? You remember where it was that you began to, that your eyes began to open a little bit? You begin to sense that there's something more to this than going to church and daydreaming and going to church and flipping through psalm books and drawing pictures and, and chewing, you know, packs and packs of gum to pass the long hours of sermon endurance. You remember that first day that all of a sudden something inside began to listen? And you began to think, man, I, maybe there's something to this. <laughs> I'm glad for that day. Amen. But I'll tell you something too. Number two. Notice the Bible says in verse 1, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house into a land that I will show thee. I'm glad that God speaks to us. And there's no greater day than when God begins to speak to us. But number two, God speaks to us in order to call us out into a life of faith. That's why he speaks to us. He spoke to Abraham not to entertain him, not to make him feel good about his mess, not to tell him, well, your idolatry is okay. I mean, after all, Abraham, nobody's perfect. No, no, no. He spoke to Abraham to call him out from where he was and lead him into a life of faith. Do we see that? That's what Christianity is about. It's about that work that God begins to do in a person when he draws them to himself and he changes them and he transforms them and he leads them to places of blessing. Hebrews 11, 8 says, By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should hereafter receive for an inheritance, obeyed. And he went out, watch this, not knowing whither he went. Out of, into, right? I'm excited about Brother Nathan being here at Calvary Baptist Church. And I'm excited about Calvary Baptist Church being here for Brother Nathan. And I'm telling you, when I, came, when I didn't know what I was going to see when I came here. But I've been so excited about the, the, the upgrades and the improvements. You can see a positive, solid, beautiful ministry here. Happy people, supportive people. There's potential here. And to see that is a blessing. Brother Nathan didn't know what he was getting into when he came here. Still doesn't know what he's into. Doesn't need to know what he's into. Just needs to be faithful. Amen. 
You be faithful to God and to Him, and He'll be faithful to God and to you, and you can leave results to the Lord, and wonderful things will happen. Amen. That's a life of faith. And God calls us out in order to bring us into something. Deuteronomy 6.23, And He brought us out from thence that He might bring us in to give us the land which He swear unto our fathers. We live in a culture now where everybody is... Everybody seems to be a ministry taster. They want to check out the church and see if it's cool enough for their family. You know what I'm talking about. I see these people, they come to visit the church and they take up half a row with their family and the dad's awfully proud that he's there and he's thinking I'm going to start tripping over myself to try to woo him into the flock. Listen, I'll woo him back out to the parking lot where he came from. Those kind of people never do much. It's people who understand that God is not impressed with them. He's going to lead them out of where they are and bring them to some other place. This church doesn't exist for you. You're here for the church. You're here for the God of the church. And in that sense, then the changes will be made in your life, but it won't be according to your plan. It won't be according to your purposes. It'll be His. Amen. Now, I'm going to try to preach brief tonight, so I'm not going to try to go back and re-say everything I think that you didn't like. But I'm going to go ahead and re-say this one. Okay? And this idea of checking out a church and making sure they got all the stuff we want for the kids, because after all, the kids are the center of the universe, right? I mean, we worship kids now, don't we? Are you all with me? all about the kids or it's all about the family or it's all about the music or it's all, hey listen let me tell you what it's all about, it's all about Jesus Christ, it's all about preaching and teaching scripture now if you can do something special for the kids to get scripture in them, I'm in if you can do something special for the family to get scripture into the family I'm in but this is not an entertainment center for people This is a worship center for the Lord of glory who is leading us out and into. Now, I'm going to move on. Get off the horse. All right? Back to the text. There's no greater day than when God first speaks to us. And God speaks to us in order to call us out and lead us into something. Let me say one more thing about all of this so far. We don't always know what God's doing. We think we know more than we do. I'm talking about those, those of us who've been around a little bit, okay? I'm talking about those of us who think, you know, who've read a few Christian books and read the Bible and we've heard plenty of sermons and we've heard it all before and seen it all before. We still don't know as much as we think we do. See, that's where faith, that's where we need to check up sometimes and get back to simple faith, get back to praying for God's direction. All right, so number three, God speaks in commands, promises, and manifestations. So we're saying this, glad for the day God speaks, that he comes into our world and he arouses our senses and he begins to draw us and he leads us out of where we were, out of our idolatry, out of our sin, out of our depravity, and he's leading us to a place where he wants to take us, all right, where he wants to bless us and use us and make us a blessing to somebody else. How does he do that? He does it with commands and promises and manifestations. Okay? Commands and promises and manifestations. Look at verse 1. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, 
Abram, get thee out of thy country. All right, there's a command. Okay? Number two, verse two, and I will make of thee a great nation. Okay, there's a promise. See that? Get out, and I'll do this for you. Okay? Look at verse 7. And the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. There's a manifestation. Do you see that? The commands don't have a lot of detail. All right? I want you to preach. God puts a desire in a young man. By the way, I think that's what the call is. The Bible says, If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good thing. I think it's desire. Delight thyself in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. I have a desire to preach. That's what I'm called to do. That's what I want to do. Okay? But you don't have to be a preacher in order for God to put the right desires into your heart. There, uh, he, he can do that. I heard a story the other day about a man in a church that wanted to be an encouragement, and he would buy up watches. He'd buy these Timex watches that were very, fairly plain, but they were good watches, and he was proud of them, and he would collect them. And when somebody would join the church, somebody would get saved, somebody would, something would happen in someone's life, he'd give them one of those watches and say, I'm praying for you, and listen, just you, do something for the Lord. That's just a little thing that God put in his heart to do, see? And it made a huge difference. So, God speaks in commands, but he doesn't give a lot of details. I want you to preach the gospel. Well, that's great. Lord, am I going to pastor a big church someday? Don't worry about that. That's great. Lord, am I going to have a, a, a nice car provided by the church like that, pastor? Don't worry about that. <laughs> pastor, am I going to pastor one of those churches where people love me and they just roll out the red carpet on Pastor's Appreciation Day? Or am I going to spend years preaching the gospel and preaching the gospel with no one seeming to care? Don't worry about it. Just do what I tell you. Okay, that's the command. Very little detail. But then comes a promise. The promise would be something like this. Preach the gospel and you'll see people saved. I'm going to get glory from it. Not your way. My way. Just do what I tell you. Here's what I'll do for you. I'll take care of the details. Right? How are we doing so far? Then there are the manifestations. Verse 7, he shows up in Abram's life and says the same thing to him. Watch this. That he's already said. How often does God work in our lives over here and he brings us out and he starts leading us along and we start serving him and following him and things get a little strange and we get a little unsettled and he kind of shows up in our lives and he shows us something, but it's the same thing he's already shown us. He's not going to write a new Bible for you. Right. It's, it, it's all here. Yeah. We just have to see it afresh and anew. Yeah. All right? Now, we're about halfway done or, or maybe even better than that. We'll see. Now, here's my challenge for you tonight, okay? This, is a, this sermon, I, I found out, I always thought this was an easy sermon. Mm-hmm. We're just talking about faith. But I found out that when you start messing with people's minds, they don't always appreciate it. You know, Mark Twain said that if you make people think they're thinking, they'll love you. If you make them think, they'll hate you. Amen. Y'all with me? Okay. And I could preach tonight against the 
you know, the crazy people out in San Francisco. I could preach against the liberals. We could talk about miniskirts in Hollywood, and everybody'd say amen, but I'll go home feeling good about ourselves. God bless America. We're better than everybody else. But if we really dig into the scripture and we examine ourselves and the real quality of our own daily faith, then it gets uncomfortable. Because what happens sometimes is those of us who've been serving God for many, many years and think we got it down, we discover sometimes we don't know as much as we think we do. Or we bought into some little slogan a preacher said 15 years ago or 20 years ago and it's not really correct. It's been messing us up all along. We've been tripping over it all along, see? We've confused our feelings with the moving of God, not the same thing. So, with that in mind, here's my challenge. I want to challenge you tonight with a few minutes we have left to live a life of faith. To be a real old-fashioned Baptist. You know, to be a Baptist, you've got to be a Bible believer. It's the Bible that makes us Baptists. I mean, that's the first principle of what it means to be a Baptist is biblical authority in all matters of faith and practice. There's no group of Baptists somewhere that meet, or at least if they are, they're no longer Baptists. <laughs> There's no group of Baptists anywhere that meet to say, well, this is how we're going to handle this ordinance. Well, the Scripture tells us how to handle it. We don't need to meet to decide how to handle it. You see what I'm saying? So Baptists believe in biblical authority. We don't make up things outside the Scripture and hold people to it. That's legalism. We believe in the scripture, in God's law, God's doctrine, God's teaching. Amen. So what I want to encourage you to do is go back to that and become again, if, if you've faltered or gotten weak or maybe your vision's a little hazy, clean your glasses, you know what I mean? So I'll go back to being a Bible-believing Christian. Here's how, here's how you do that. Number one, you do it with the right set of standards. You do it with the right set of standards. You, uh, we uh, get together and pick and play. The first thing you do is you've got, you've got to get tuned, yeah. right? And you can pick up any guitar, any banjo, any string instrument, and you can tune it to itself in a sense or to your ear, but it's not true unless it's tuned to a specific standard, Right? And if everybody's tuning to the standard, everybody will be in tune. It's sort of like copying, you have an original and then you have a copy of an original. And you need to copy the original. Because if you continue to copy copies, then the picture is less vivid. Does that make sense? If everybody sets their clock by English standard time, everybody's on time, see? There's got to be an authority. That's why the psalmist David said, I esteem thy precepts to be right concerning all things, and I hate every false way. Amen. Now, when I say standard tonight, that's what I mean. In our independent Baptist circles and conservative Christianity, we often refer to standards. And what we mean by that is, is very often something other than what I mean. I mean a standard as in a rule of faith that is rooted in the authority of the Scripture, and that's the measurement that we use to determine how we live and what we do. Is everybody still with me? If, um, if we're going to follow God, we've got to have the right set of standards. 
In the Bible, there are two things that, uh, two words that we could use, principles and precepts, okay? Both of those are important. A principle is like a, a law. It's like speed limit 55. That's a principle. Now, it doesn't matter if it's noon or midnight, the speed limit right there is 55. It doesn't matter if everybody else around you is speeding. The speed limit's 55. It's not 56, 57, it's not 54, 53. That's the law. Are y'all with me? That's a principle. The Bible says thou shalt not commit adultery. Period. Doesn't say thou shalt not commit adultery unless the marriage seems to take an unfortunate turn (laughs) into boredom. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not bear false witness, right? The New Testament standard for discernment is to despise not prophesyings. Quench not the spirit, right? Despise not prophesyings. This all goes together. Prove all things. Hold fast that which is good abstain from all appearance of evil. That's the process. And principles are law. Speed limit 55. When I was a teenager, and I would leave the house, I would try to get out before my dad would say, hey son, don't speed. Because if he said that, I felt a heavier unction to not speed. (laughs) Somehow in my goofy 17-year-old brain, I thought if I could get out without him saying it again, I was clear. I was in the clear, right? (laughs) Principles. Okay, there's a second word, though, and that's precepts. Precepts are also important, but they're worded differently. If a principle is speed limit 55, a precept is drive carefully. Okay? Okay? Drive carefully means one thing to my daughter, Kelsey, something altogether different to my son, Buddy. (laughs) Trust me. Amen. Drive carefully. You know, the Bible, can you imagine what this book would look like if God gave us all a bunch of rules? And you also know that rules change in culture. The way people see and receive things, cultures change, traditions change. But this book is written in such a way that it is timeless and it applies to any culture in any period of time. The Bible says, for instance, for a woman to dress in modest apparel. That's a principle. I'm not going to get into that, but it it means something. You know with me? It's in the Bible. It do mean something. So we understand, the Bible says to make no provision for the flesh. What does that mean? It could mean a lot of things. It's a precept. And when we want to walk by faith, it begins with the right set of standards, with the commands from the scripture, which are going to come to us in the form of principles and precepts. And it should be our desire to please God. And we should know these things and be able to give them as reasons for why we do what we do and we don't do what we do. Amen. All right. Okay, let's go on. If we're going to follow God in the life of faith, and we're going to just believe what he says, verse 4, so Abram departed 
as the Lord had spoken unto him. There's all sorts of principles in the Bible. How about can two walk together except they be agreed? I saw something on, tele, on, on, on social media the other day, some news-related, Fox News-related thing, where someone was scandalized that a particular celebrity had turned down a date because the person who was asking them on a date didn't share their faith. And I would just like for one time to have the opportunity to go on that talk show <laughs> and just turn the table and say, are you serious? Are you aware of the divorce rate? I mean, have you taken your brain out and left it somewhere? Do you understand how hard it is to get along in a marriage when you agree? So we're going we're gonna to start out a marriage I'm a Christian who believes the Bible. I'm a Baptist, and I'm going to marry some girl who's a Jew. Doesn't believe in Jesus. Really? If she's really good looking, we can get through the first couple of years. What happens when we have some kids? And I want to take little Junior and tell him about Jesus. She wants to tell him that Jesus was just a man. How can two walk together except they be agreed? with the right set of standards. Number two, if we're going to follow God and live the life of faith, it's going to require the right source of satisfaction. I think some preachers make the mistake of making it sound like they don't think it matters if people are happy. I completely reject that. People talk about happiness like it's the ugly stepsister to joy. You hear it all the time. Happiness is based upon happenings, and joy has to do with what's in the heart, and it's eternal. And God doesn't care if you're happy. That's malarkey. This Bible says happy is that people whose God is the Lord. This Bible says happy is the man that findeth wisdom. So while I am not saying that your personal happiness is God's priority, I am saying that if you're a Christian and you're never, ever happy, something's wrong. Amen. Something's got to get adjusted. You're thinking, the way you see things, how you're going about your life, your decision-making, your opinions, your convictions, or the lack thereof, you've got to get an adjustment because a Christian ought to have both joy inwardly and he ought to experience happiness because what we believe as Christians changes our behavior, alters our direction, and will affect the happenings of life in a different way than if we didn't live for the Lord. What kind of nonsense is it to say being a Christian is not going to make you any happier than anybody else? That's ridiculous. So, are you satisfied? And what is it that should satisfy us? Really simple. The promises of God. You know, look at verse 2. He says, I will make of thee a great nation. I will bless thee and make thy name great. And thou shalt be a blessing, and I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Man, those promises of God, when we understand them in their context, and I would encourage you to understand your Bible and to rightly divide the word of truth and to believe what you're supposed to believe and expect the right things. Amen. Amen. I like the song, every promise in the book is mine, yada, yada, yada. It's just not true. 
Now, now I've got attention. Every promise in the Bible is not yours. There are promises in the Bible that are yours, but all of them are not yours. You're not Abraham. God's not going to make a nation come out of you. Y'all with me? So you have to rightly divide the word of truth and you have to get those promises that are directly to you that you know are yours, that you know you can claim, you know you can stand on, and then you go about living the life of faith expecting God to bless in the future, waiting for those blessings. You know what you call that? Hope. And we're satisfied at the present, trusting Him for what He's going to do later. Sometimes we have to die to our expectations. Hope deferred maketh the heart sick. Right? Well, I was deer hunting one time with a, my brother-in-law, and I've never done any bow hunting, so I warmed up for 30 minutes or so and at the deer camp and said, okay, I, we will see. Maybe I can get close. And So he takes me out there, and he puts me in this big tree. And I'm sitting up there with my with bow, and, and, and I'm over, looking over this pile of carrots, okay? And I've been sitting, I'm after I sat there for a while, I'm thinking, I'll get down and get me some of them carrots, you know what I mean? And, and I was not up there long. By the time my mind starts to drift, I, I focused. I, th- I thought the ground was moving. And there's a deer standing right there over that pile of carrots. And I said, well, how lucky could he get? Yeah. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to draw and shoot him. So I draw down, and, and I shoot, and I miss him. And he takes off in the woods. And I said, well, that's better than nothing, I guess. I've never been bow hunting before. There you go. So I thought, well, I got a story to tell. That's pretty good. So I'm sitting up there waiting, hope, praying for sun to come down fast so I can go eat, <laughs> right? Get out of that stupid tree. A few minutes later, I look down, and there's a deer again, and it's the same one. And I know it's the same one because he told me his name. No, I mean, I, I know it's the same deer because there's a gash in his back where that broadhead bounced off his back. I said, that's the same deer. I said, oh, you've had it. You know, I ain't missing twice. And so I get, and I dropped my arrow in the tree. And, and, and I'm like, and I put my foot on it, and I went. When I did that, she looked up. And I'm trying not to breathe. She puts her head back down. I had to get it, reload. She's still eating them. Kim Carrots are evidently good. So I draw down, and I get steady, and I shoot. And she leaps if you've ever done any deer hunting, you know a lot of deer, they respond a lot of different ways depending on where you hit them. She leaps and she runs into the woods and we had a, a leader, a line tied to that bow and she's peeling that line off. So I'm thinking, I got her. And so she goes in the woods and I'm like, that's great. First time I go bow hunting, I kill a deer, this is easy. Long story short, we tracked that thing down, there's no deer anywhere. What I did was I shot in front of her and she jumped into that stream and was pulling around her neck. And so she runs to the woods, and it's just peeling that line off my bow, and I'm thinking, I got her. Well, you know what that is? I've done a, I did a lot of trash talking before we figured out I didn't really hit that deer. That, that's what you call hope deferred maketh the heart sick. There are a lot of Christians who are disappointed in the Christian life because they've built up some hopes and expectations that are not scriptural hopes and expectations. Right. Somebody taught him, if you do this, God will do this, and that's not always true. You've got to make sure you know what you're dealing with and make sure that the source of satisfaction for you are the promises of God 
to which you have a right. And most of those, friends, the vast majority of those promises have to do with a future inheritance. And in the presence, he'll give us great peace of mind and the peace which passeth understanding will keep our hearts and minds. Yes. So we go forward in this life of faith with the right set of standards. And number two, with the right source of satisfaction. Someone asked the great missionary, Adoniram Judson, did he think what was the chances, what were the prospects of the conversion of the heathen? And he said the, the prospects for the conversion of the heathen are as bright as the promises of God. And that's a great quote and everybody loves it. And you'll see it all the time on social media and bumper stickers and refrigerator magnets and greeting cards and and it's true. But Adoniram Judson set sail for Burma in 1812 and he buried six kids and two wives. We could talk the rest of the night on how he suffered. He was sick off the coast of Africa on a boat when he died. And he said, how is it that so many have had to die so hard? That's Judson. So yes, the promises of God are true. But that doesn't mean our circumstances will always be easy. But we take satisfaction in His promises. And then finally, finally, the third way is with the right sensitivity to the Spirit of God. The right sensitivity to the Spirit of God. Man, I think the devil accomplishes so much with us, those of us who are living the Christian life by desensitizing us. We see so many weird things in Christian circles, so many crazy things out there that we just become kind of desensitized. And we find ourselves going through the motions because, you know, we're just, just so disgusted with it all sometimes. Maybe he desensitizes you to what's happening in a, a special place like this just because you're trying to make a living. You're just trying to make ends meet. You're just hoping your mother-in-law doesn't come for another visit. You're just trying to get your kids through school. Right? And you're desensitized. But I want to say to you that if you're in that place, the Lord will do for you, I believe what he did for Abraham, I believe he'll appear at times, I don't know, stay with me, he'll show up in your life with reassurance. Well, let me tell you what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that you'll literally see Jesus, okay? I'm not, this is not TBN. I'm not saying that the voices in your head are God speaking to you. All right, now I hate to end the sermon with the most controversial observations, but that's just the way it happens tonight. Most Christians think that God moving and leading is some internal emotion. And you won't find any scripture for that anywhere. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. This is where he works. This is where he leads. What did he say to Abram? The exact same thing he'd already said to him. What's he going to say to you? What he's already said. But when we become sensitive again to the Spirit, these words have that same meaning they had when we first read them, when we first came into conviction, when we first got saved. When we get our hearts right, then all of a sudden what we thought was just mundane becomes our answer again. See? 
God hasn't changed. He's still powerful. The Word can still deliver you. It can still get you through. But when you're desensitized to it, you're not interested in it. You feel like, you know, you really you've graduated to a better place now. You know some things. Probably the most misinterpreted verse in the Bible along these lines is the verse that says, the peace, let the peace of God rule in your hearts. You've heard it all your life. Well, I just don't have peace about it. Peace about what? The Bible says for you to do it. You don't need peace about it. I very seldom have peace about doing the right thing. Honestly, because the right thing involves things that I don't want to do, like work. Right? I, I don't want to have to read this whole 250-page book in a week. Don't want to do it. I don't want to go to the hospital at 5.30 in the morning. The last thing in the world I want to do, let somebody else go visit them. They're not even going to know I was there anyway. I'm not a doctor. Can't perform surgery. I'll see them Wednesday when they get out. <laughs> right? I never have peace about doing the right thing. The right thing is to listen to my wife and to be nice to her and consider it and do some things she wants to do. I never want to do that. <laughs> but I'm supposed to. What the Bible means when it says, let the peace of God rule in your hearts, the context is there with that same verse that says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Right. Yeah. So what happens is the word of God becomes a part of our hearts and our minds and our thinking. And we have this relationship with God that can be described as peaceful. We're at peace with God. We're right with Him. So let that peace rule. Don't do anything that would violate that peace. That's what that verse means. It doesn't mean you're going to feel good about everything. Everybody feels differently about a lot of things. Look at verse 3 and we're done. A lot of sarcasm tonight, and if you're not used to that, let me say, it's just my way. My desire tonight is to teach and to preach the Scripture and encourage you to follow God in faith, and this is the way I talk. Don't choke on it. I'm not important. My opinions aren't important. But if you would follow God and trust the Scripture, you would not be sorry. Okay? All right. In Genesis 3, 12 and verse 3 says, And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. You know how to know if you're really living a life of faith. You'll, you'll be tell you what you're going to start to see. Not necessarily random phantom checks in the mailbox, which is everybody's favorite testimony, right? Not necessarily that, you know, your toe is going to be healed. You, you may actually get it amputated. Right? I got so frustrated with some of this stuff. My dad passed away in June and my own personal frustrations, you know, when people say, well, we've got to get a lot of people to pray. And I remember thinking, this is like my own personal tantrum. Really? So is there a number? I mean, how many people do I need to get to pray? Is, it, is God not, is, does God not care that if, if just I pray? Yeah. See, see what I'm saying? I'm not saying don't ask people to pray, but I, I, I'm saying we, we make things sometimes something mystical sure. instead of making it a biblical walk of faith. Yeah. And here's what's going to start showing up when you follow him. Other people are going to be blessed. Mm. Yeah, that's it. Other people will be blessed. Mm. I mean, when I was pastoring Beth growing up, there was 10 times I wanted to quit that church and leave. 
wasn't because the church was bad or the people were bad. It was because it's life and it gets hard. When things get hard, I'm out. <laughs> right? I was born in 1967. I didn't come up in the Depression. My philosophy of life is if it's difficult, unpleasant, boring, I quit. <laughs> that's, that's my life verse. But we stayed until I believed God was done with us there and it was time to go. So then I come to a place like this and I see Beth and her husband and her family and I see you folks in the ministry that you have and the fellowship you have together. That makes me think it's worth it. If anybody gets help, it's worth it. And you'll be working with somebody who will begin to see your faith and, and it'll help them. And you'll get that note. You'll get that letter. You'll get that encouraging word to say, man, you really made a difference in my life when you showed me that truth, when you taught me what it means to be saved, when I saw you faithful though you were suffering. You'll start to see that. that that's the residue, the results of a life of faith. Yeah. A life of the flesh is the opposite. It'll turn people off and turn people away and even you will never be satisfied though you're living to satisfy yourself. But you live to follow the Lord and please Him. Other people will be blessed and you'll say, you know what, I'm, I'm kind of happy. <laughs> Amen, let's pray together.